0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary at HHS, on the Biden Administration's efforts to address long COVID, child vaccine
1: uptake, monkeypox, and women's reproductive rights. We want to make sure that we protect patients and providers from discrimination. We want to protect emergency access to abortion care. FactCheck.org's Managing Editor, Lori Robertson, checks in and we end with
0: a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark. Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter.
2: Our guest leads an office that just reported an estimated 7 to 23 million Americans have developed long COVID. Research has shown a long COVID condition can last weeks or months, affecting all ages, backgrounds, and demographics. Previously, healthy individuals may become disabled while others heal.
0: Here to discuss this issue and other timely topics is Admiral Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She's connected to the researchers who are working quickly to better understand long COVID, which is a multi-systemic and multifaceted
1: disease. Thank you very much, I'm very pleased to be here.
2: Yeah, we're so glad that you're back uh, joining us in Conversations in Healthcare. And you were last with us in June of 2021. And at that time we talked about the health equity and mental health issues related to COVID. Now, the Biden administration just released uh, the National Research Action Plan on long COVID, and it's the first U.S. government-wide national research agenda focused in on this issue. Some clinicians say that patients with long COVID are either unvaccinated or missing their boosters. Are you seeing that in the work so
1: far? Well, so we are seeing that vaccination is somewhat protective Mm -hmm. for people in terms of getting long COVID. Uh, But we need more research, and that's what the National Research Action Plan in that report emphasizes, is that we have done research through the NIH and CDC and and other uh, departments, but we need more research, and the plan outlines the research to come. Well, Admiral, there's uh, another report
0: out now that outlines uh, federal services that are available to Americans to address long COVID, and it includes resources for healthcare personnel who are treating patients uh, with long COVID, which is certainly a challenge that's emerging for healthcare personnel in the U.S. What are the unique risks for patients with long COVID uh, and for their healthcare providers? Is it significantly different from treating what we might call the initial stage COVID patients?
1: Well, we still have more to learn about um, all of the different aspects of long COVID. There are many different signs and symptoms uh, to to long COVID. um, And that is really the point of the research action plan through the NIH and the CDC and and others. But you're right, we have a second report, the services and supports for longer term impacts of COVID-19. And this outlines the federally funded supports and services for individuals and families experiencing those longer term uh, impacts. And it also does Outline recommendations for physicians and medical providers that are seeing those patients. You know, we don't know um, exactly what is causing long COVID. It might not be one thing, uh, but those, but long COVID is real and those patients need support and they need treatment. Um, the treatment can't be as specific as one medication or one specific treatment, but they do need um, support as we do for many other patients with these type of chronic conditions.
2: Well, I think you're so right that we need more research and not only uh, with NIH, but others, as you indicated, are are doing that. And we read recently in a science magazine uh, that others have suggested that long COVID might actually be a post-infection syndrome and may highlight there are no autoimmune markers to make, a, quote, a, a real disease. I wonder if you can uh, address that perspective.
1: Well, again, I want to emphasize that, that long COVID um, is real uh, because we want to make it to emphasize that, that patients are not malingering. But we don't know exactly, as I said, what causes long COVID. So uh, there are some research studies that indicate that it might be a chronic infection with COVID-19, and there was a recent research study from Harvard a month or so ago which suggested that, but we need much more research to know if it is a chronic infection or whether it is more of a chronic inflammatory response, as you said, a post-infectious process. You know, in my field of adolescent medicine and my academic medicine career, Mm -hmm. I saw many, many uh, teenagers and young adults with post-infectious Symptoms. So, whether that was uh, patients with neuromediated hypotension and a tendency to, to faint associated with, with other behavioral aspects, uh, whether it was patients with chronic abdominal pain after probable viral uh, gastrointestinal infections. This is not new to us. This is not new to medicine. Uh, The the, the one um, syndrome that we have seen is ME-CFS, myalgic encephalitis with chronic fatigue syndrome. And we've been studying that for years. What we're hoping for is that the research uh, into long COVID will also give us new perspectives on those illnesses as well.
0: Well, Admiral, the sheer numbers of people uh, infected and within a relatively short time uh, in our country hopefully is bringing... Tremendous focus on this, and we really thank you for your leadership efforts in this area. Uh, There is so much going on in our country right now. I'd like to ask you about another front. We're still assessing the impact of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision overturning a constitutional right to abortion. President Biden has just praised Kansas voters for rejecting an abortion ban, uh, and the Justice Department's filed a lawsuit against Idaho to Block a state law that would allow doctors to be criminally prosecuted for providing abortions. And the president's signing an executive order aimed at supporting Americans uh, who cross state borders for abortions in terms of access to reproductive health care, including abortions. Can you comment on what more needs to be done and can we expect to see further actions in the near future?
1: Well, this is a critical. Issue for the Biden-Harris administration and for Secretary Becerra uh, and myself and others working at HHS. You know, access to healthcare, access to reproductive healthcare and reproductive rights is a core value of the administration uh, really uh, uh, across the federal government uh, and particularly for Secretary Becerra and HHS. So, uh, So the secretary has laid out a plan and is working to take action to help people. And as you said, the president signed an executive order. You know, We want to make sure that we protect patients and providers from discrimination. We want to protect emergency access to abortion care. Uh, we want to make sure that providers have training in, the, in these services. And we want to strengthen family planning care and emergency contraception in the face of, of this extremely difficult and challenging Supreme Court Decision And so we are working um, through my office of the Assistant Secretary for Health and then other offices, our Office of Civil Rights and others, on these initiatives. Uh, We have launched a website, reproductiverights.gov, which is a public awareness uh, website. We are convening health insurers and and calling on them to commit to meeting their obligations to providing coverage for contraceptive services at no cost, which is uh, required by the Affordable Care Act. Um, There is new funding uh, to bolster training and technical assistance for Title X uh, planning providers and more. So um, many different efforts across our department and the administration on this issue.
2: You know, Admiral, let's just stay on that topic for a moment. The administration has issued guidance to remind health plans and insurers of the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive coverage in in light of the Dobbs decision uh, a group of senators has asked the Veterans Affairs Secretary to provide abortion access to veterans in states that restrict or ban the procedure. Uh, would you be in
1: favor of such a move? Well, that, that's more of a, of a, a, a legal issue uh, that uh, for the VA that I can't really count on. But we want to make sure that people have access to the reproductive services uh, that they need and they deserve. And so we'll be working across the department and administration to achieve that. And Admiral, uh,
0: yet another uh, major public health threat now in everyone's consciousness, we're dealing with monkeypox. Uh, And we'd like to give you a chance uh, maybe to respond to critics, uh, some in the LGBTQ community included, who say that the Biden administration has not done enough uh, maybe to prepare as well as to respond uh, based on what is happening now. Certainly, uh, we are seeing overwhelming interest uh, in receiving the vaccine by the targeted populations at risk at our community health centers here in Connecticut. But the supply is low. We don't know. Uh, whether it will be able to be replenished, can you comment on this for us?
1: Sure. Well, the monkeypox um, uh, infection issue is a, a critical issue for the secretary and for HHS, uh, and obviously for the administration. They have just um, hired a coordinator at the White House um, and a, a deputy coordinator, uh, Dr. Daskalakis, who, who has been at in the New York Health Department and the CDC very experienced in terms of these infectious disease issues you know remember that the the supply that we have had in the national stockpile has been for potential smallpox infection there's no way to have anticipated that monkeypox would have spread the way it has um, in the world and in the united states so we are fortunate that we have had a supply of the genios vaccine uh, that we have distributed to the, to the state uh, health departments for administration, and we are working with the manufacturer, um, which is located overseas, on purchasing more. We have received much of that vaccine and are working on distributing that, and then we've purchased more for the future. Uh, the CDC has outlined a procedure for the distribution of the vaccine, looking where the infections are now, but also looking to where they anticipate the infections will be in the future uh, so that we can stay ahead of of this. We have expanded testing and we have expanded testing to commercial laboratories. So testing should be much more available now. There are five commercial laboratories that can do testing. We want to work on um, mitigation and, and, and ways that people can help protect themselves from uh, infection with monkeypox, which is it is different than COVID-19. It is spread only through close personal contact. It's not going to be spread across the room uh, the, the way that COVID-19 can be as a respiratory virus. Um, and we're working on distribution of t which is the treatment. Now, again, the treatment was designed for Smallpox, not for monkeypox, but it is effective against monkeypox, and and so we want to work on the distribution of these resources. Which again, the vaccine and the treatment have been stored for potential smallpox infection, but we are deploying them for the monkeypox response. There is another vaccine that people have mentioned, the ACAM 2000 vaccine, that also has does have significant stores. Uh, in the national stockpile for a, any potential smallpox infection. But it's a different vaccine. It's a, it's a live virus vaccine that is not totally attenuated. And it does cause a, a viremia, an active infection in people who then are usually very mild, uh, who then mount this effective immune response. But for people who are immunosuppressed, it can lead to a severe active infection. And it also can be spread... Um, by someone who's been immunized and could have spread to a close contact who might be immunosuppressed. So, you know, in the community most impacted, the men who have sex sex with men community uh, and the potential of HIV in that community, the ACAM 2000 is not really an effective countermeasure at this time. You know, we want to make sure that we deal with any issues of stigma associated with monkeypox. Anyone can get monkeypox. It just has started and spread in the men who have sex with men community. And that's where we've been targeting our resources right now.
2: Well, I do want to highlight that the percentage of Americans without health insurance hit a record low, 8% in the first quarter of 2022. But maintaining that low rate uh, depends on a lot of uh, factors, uh, whether the s- Senate can extend uh, expanded Obamacare subsidies through the reconciliation bill. And as we talk with you, it's really unclear if Senator Cinema uh, will cast the crucial Democratic vote needed to make this happen. If the senator were listening right now, what would you say to her?
1: Well, you know, so it's not for me to, uh, as as the assistant secretary for health, to give um, any of the senators uh, personal advice about their vote. Um, all I can say is that it is critically important that we continue that positive trend and continue to, to work on decreasing as much as possible the uninsured rate in our country. So measures that help decrease the uninsured rate are very important in, for medical reasons and for public health reasons.
2: You know, I'm wondering if I could do a follow-up because another big uh, issue that's, uh, is the emergency order that the president still, I think, has extended until October, which for all the 50 states and territories, Means that uh, I believe there's no sort of redetermination going on in Medicaid, and that once the emergency order is lifted, uh, there may be an enormous number of people who lose their Medicaid coverage. Any thoughts of ways that that can be mitigated? Uh, and again, uh, there's a 90 day promise back to the states that will let you know before we take this action, but still, millions of people in the balance here. Uh, what are
1: your thoughts? Well, I know that this is a, a very important issue, and I know that Chiquita Brooks-Lashore, the uh, the administrator of CMS, and the secretary and others are looking at this very, very closely because it is very important.
0: Well, uh, Admiral, we've been at this for a long time. We certainly remember the pre-Affordable Care Act days and uh, hope the positive trends that were wrought by it continue. And we're also very proud of the work that our uh, community health center is in terms of uh, providing uh, exceptional care and sensitive care to our LGBT community, and this includes gender-affirming hormone therapy. You were part of a recent roundtable of uh, families who have children who are transgender. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about what you heard uh, about what people need, what might help more Americans understand what's at stake here. Certainly the vitriol from the anti-trans forces is very worrisome right now, particularly when we think of our young people.
1: You know, we've made so much progress um, under the previous Obama administration and in President Biden's administration for the LGBTQI plus community. Uh, But unfortunately, we are facing a significant politically motivated backlash where there are politicians, particularly in states, that are enacting uh, laws and taking actions that are politically motivated and very challenging and potentially damaging to vulnerable LGBTQI plus youth, particularly for transgender youth and for gender diverse youth. So we're talking about actions in Texas and actions and laws in Florida and in, in, in Alabama and in many other states, um, so you know we're, we're going to need to respond to these challenges because we want to empower young people, but we also want to to affirm and empower young people who are transgender and help them in their um, in their care. So these uh, actions that limit their participation in sports and activities, uh, actions that and laws that actually limit their ability to to access gender affirming treatment, often at, at, by pediatric specialists at our expert children's hospitals um, are egregious. And so we're gonna respond in a number of different ways. One is in terms of advocacy. So the president has spoken about this, the vice president, the secretary, myself, as you said, I have visited with young people throughout uh, the country um, at uh, gender uh, affirming clinics whether that's Seattle Children's Hospital, Children's National uh, Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, D.C. Children's and Children's National Medical Center, and many other places. I've heard from these young people. I've heard from these families about the challenges that they're facing. So I have gone to Texas. I have gone to Florida. And I am speaking out about this. But that uh, advocacy is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So we're also working on policy. Um, IN THE LAST NUMBER OF WEEKS, OUR OFFICE OF CIVIL RIGHTS HAS PUT OUT FOR PUBLIC COMMENT uh, THEIR RULE AND REGULATION, WHICH STATES THAT THE AFFORDABLE CARE ACT AND SECTION 1557, WHICH STATES THAT YOU CANNOT DISCRIMINATE ON THE BASIS OF SEX, THAT THAT INCLUDES SEXUAL AND GENDER MINORITIES, THAT INCLUDES SEXUAL ORIENTATION AND GENDER IDENTITY. AND AFTER THE PUBLIC COMMENT, THAT WILL INFORM EVERYTHING THAT uh, HOW WE LOOK AT THAT ISSUE ACROSS HHS including for HRSA and community health centers, including for CMS and for Medicare and Medicaid and for insurance coverage. And so we're looking forward to the promulgation of that regulation. I know that in other departments, at the Department of Education, they have made the same interpretation for Title IX, and that has gone out for public comment. And we know that the, that the administration is going to be working on the legal front and with the Department of Justice, which has already weighed, weighed in with, with a brief um, and a comment on Alabama's law, which actually made providing gender affirmation treatment a felony for those pediatricians and experts at children's hospitals. Um, and then finally, the president has called for Congress to pass the Equality Act in terms of, of rights and, and for sexual and gender minorities. So we have to work on all of these fronts to protect the rights and freedoms for LGBTQA plus individuals and their families.
2: Well, it is so important to focus on rules, regulations, and legislation. There's a lot that looks like it's in the pipeline uh, that will... Uh, have a profound impact, but I do want to just uh, note for our uh, audience that you're known and praised for your mental health work, Uh, so thank you, and certainly it was good news when the new 988 Suicide and Crisis Hotline began, and there's a federal mandate and 430 million uh, allocated to states to expand their crisis networks, but now there are reports that there are 29 states have not introduced any legislation to address the 988 hotline funding. What what can the administration do and can they work around the states and maybe directly fund nonprofits to do this work? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, so you're correct. Mental health challenges um, coming uh, uh, with the pandemic have been uh, very serious, particularly for youth, but really across the lifespan. And, and that includes, of course, the disease of addiction and substance use. Uh, but we have had uh, a lot of concerns about suicidal risk uh, among specific communities, particularly young people. Um, also, we were talking about the LGBTQI community, um, but other communities that have been very impacted by the COVID 19 pandemic, um, uh, the African American community, the um, the, the hispanic community and the latino community the uh, American Indian native Alaskan community and more and so uh, last month uh, with my uh, associate uh, uh, assistant secretary delphin Ritman of samHsa uh, we HHS launched a new three-digit um, hotline 988 uh, it is for calling but it is also for texting and chat uh, as you i'm sure you know teenagers don't uh, call. Uh, they, they will use texting or they might use chatting. Uh, and using that three-digit line, uh, they will be connected to trained counselors, part of the existing National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. Um, and so we are continuing to work on, on all of these different aspects. Uh, there has been um, $432 million, including $105 million in grant funding to states and territories provided by the American Rescue Plan. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we're working to work with states and, and territories on the implementation of this plan. So this is being done, again, primarily through my colleague uh, at uh, Dr. Delphin Rittman at SAMHSA, and they're gonna try to work with all of the states and all the territories to make sure that this critically important um, lifeline is implemented.
0: Well, Dr. Levine, Admiral uh, Levine, we really want to thank you uh, for joining us, for your willingness to comment on uh, such a wide range of issues of great concern uh, and interest to our country right now. It's especially meaningful to us as the week of August 7th is National Community Health Center Week. And we appreciate uh, your understanding and appreciation of the work that community health centers do and how vital health care as a right for people in our country is. And thanks also to our audience for joining us today. And you can learn more about Conversations on Healthcare and sign up uh, for our emails at chcradio.com. Admiral Levine, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
3: Tetanus affects the nervous system after bacteria called Clostridium tetani enter the body through an open wound. More than 80% of cases occur in mothers and their babies, according to UNICEF, and the fatality rate for infants is between 80% and 100%, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A lack of access to hygienic delivery and umbilical cord care contributes to high rates of infection, which are are concentrated in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Although there are safe and effective vaccines to prevent tetanus, their use has been falling, as have vaccination rates generally since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Despite the danger of this disease for infants, a group with a history of spreading vaccine disinformation, called Children's Health Defense, has promoted a video on social media suggesting that some tetanus vaccines are actually part of a covert plot to control population growth by rendering women of childbearing age infertile. That debunked claim has been around since the 1990s. The claim rests on the false notion that a hormone blocker would co- that would cause infertility had been surreptitiously added to tetanus vaccines. This claim, like many longstanding conspiracy theories, is based on a grain of truth. In the early 1990s, researchers in India developed and tested a combination contraceptive and tetanus vaccine that was designed to prevent pregnancies temporarily. It did not have a permanent effect on fertility. But hormone blockers have never been used in tetanus vaccines available to the public. They've only been used in research. Research on a birth control vaccine was revived in 2006, although tetanus had been replaced with E. coli as the vehicle paired with the hormone blocker. So the most recent research didn't even use tetanus. Neither the original formulation nor the more recent one with E. coli has been produced or distributed for general use. As for tetanus vaccination, the World Health Organization and UNICEF have undertaken several vaccination programs to address maternal and neonatal tetanus. For example, UNICEF partnered with Kiwanis International in 2010 in a vaccination effort that resulted in a more than 40% decrease in the number of newborns dying of the disease between 2010 and 2015. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
0: FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Healthcare providers are forever on the lookout for that magic elixir that can cure a host of chronic ills in one step. And in the case of obesity, depression, anxiety, and stress, that elixir could be a number of steps, as in taking a hike. A large study conducted by several institutions, including the University of Michigan and Edge Hill University in the U.K., looked at the medicinal benefits derived from
4: regular group hikes conducted in nature. This study had enough people following them over time that we could see that these two different types of help for our mental well-being, they're operating independently. That means that if we go out in nature for a walk, we're getting an additional boost to our mental well-being.
0: Researchers evaluated some 2,000 participants in a program called Walking for Health in England, which sponsors some 3,000 walks per week across the
4: country. There was investment in these walking groups, in training leaders to take people on walks, finding trails that were good for people to do even if they had health problems.
0: Dr. Sarah Warber, professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, said this study showed a dramatic improvement in the mental
4: well-being of participants. Depression was reduced. Perceived stress was reduced. And they experience more positive feelings or positive emotions. And there's been really lovely research that's shown that when we have positive emotions, we actually have better health in the long run.
0: The participants almost universally reported reduced stress and depression after participating in group nature hikes, and the effect was cumulative over time. Dr. Warber says this is the first study that revealed the added benefits of group hikes in nature and significant mitigation of depression.
4: Because we were really interested in if you are more stressed, would you get some better benefit from being in nature? And in fact, that did pan out.
0: Walk for Health, a simple guided group nature hike program, which incentivizes folks suffering from depression and anxiety to step into the fresh air with others, to talk out their thoughts while taking a hike, improving their mood, reducing their depression, increasing their overall health at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCradio.com.